Written and directed by Lorraine Scafaria, the film isn't as lean as it should be. The scam plays out redundantly again and again. That's from Randall King of Winnipeg Free Press. I agree with him. I'll give you my review of Hustlers, which has gotten strong reviews. I mean, that's why I went and saw it. I said, okay, uh, Rotten Tomatoes giving it 87%. I mean, that's shockingly good reviews for the film, considering it's just about a bunch of strippers, all due respect. But the audience score of 67%, so that's actually quite telling. Critics, this, this to me screamed. 50% Rotten Tomatoes, 80% audience score with a bunch of J-Lo fans living it up because she is really good in the movie. Instead, it goes the other way. 87% critics, 67% the other way. We'll try to dissect what exactly went wrong with the Hustlers, at least in my estimation, as you welcome to Cinephile once again. Thank you, as always, for checking us out. Please do give us some love. You know, I do another podcast here on Cadence 13, the GM Shuffle with our man Michael Lombardi, and our podcast jumped up by 30% with the return of the NFL week one numbers. So that was really exciting to see. I'm hoping we can see that same kind of jump here with Cinephile. So please do check us out. Subscribe, rate, and review. Go to Apple Podcasts and give us some love there. And like I said, it's fall movie season. So now you want to get uh, even more buzz going with all these really great movies coming out. Got this one here from T-Brad. Adnan wastes no time getting to his reviews. Sharp, witty, and thoughtful in his responses. Great juxtaposition between Adnan and Joe's point of views. Thank you, T-Brad. Putting that up there September 10th right here on Apple Podcasts. So please do give us some love and pass along. Like I said, I like to read up the reviews and uh, let people know what they think. As always, you can tweet me questions as well, at CinephilePod. And my thanks to Brian Raftery. He was fantastic. Uh, the author of Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen, got lots of positive feedback. Uh, Nick Durst, uh, our uh, social media director, said the tweets were great when people were voting their, their favorite movies of 99. So please do check that out. Um, the interview not only of Brian Raftery, but by his book as well, because honestly, it's a great read. I focus on the movies that I really love, but honestly, there's there's plenty of movies as well that um, I didn't focus on, like The Iron Giant, which is one of Joe's favorites from that year of 99. But let's talk about Hustlers. Honestly, I was disappointed. And I looked slightly creepy going to the theater, which is five minutes from my home here in Ridgewood, New Jersey. We live in Hohokus. And I'm catching an 1130 screening by myself. I'm like, okay, who's the middle-aged man sitting right in the middle of the theater with five other people in the entire theater watching Hustlers, a movie about strippers. Hey, this is what I do for Cinephile, okay? I'm dedicated to the cause. This movie got the best reviews of any new movie opening this past weekend. So, hey, I'm down for that. And to be honest with you, the first 30 minutes I thought was, was decent enough. It, it's quite racy. I mean, the story, if you don't know what it's about, um, it's a character played by Constance Wu based on a true story about an article which appeared, I believe, in the New York Times about a scam that was done by bunch of strippers there from scores and uh the actual girl was asian so at one point they weren't sure about the casting and they're like well who are we gonna get like come on let's go so constance Wu, who i love on fresh off the boat and she's really good in the movie uh, she plays the main character of destiny so she's working the strip club you know it's kind of mindless whatever and all of a sudden she gets seduced by ramona who's played by jennifer lopez who has a really uh very sexy entrance into the movie because she's, you know, she comes out dancing. Oh my God, who, who, it's like literally just as the audience is mesmerized by Ramona, so is Destiny. And so she comes out, you know, full Debbie Moore striptease, away we go. And she totally rocks the, rocks the house. And uh, I did think J-Lo's performance was quite magnetic. She's playing the mentor here. And in fact, then you get those scenes of her teaching Destiny, you know, exactly what to do on the pole. You know, here's the martini, here's this, here's that. And by the way, Jennifer Lopez, in doing research for the role, Alex Rodriguez did accompany her, which I think shows just what a good guy he is. I mean, he clearly was busy doing other things, but he was like, yeah, I'll go with you. I will accompany you to various gentlemen's clubs just to watch you gain research for the role. So listen, A-Rod, a very supportive guy. 
Um, then the story, to me, becomes formulaic, because now you got the young stripper mentored by the older one. you got Cardi B in the mix, former stripper herself. you got a funny scene backstage where all the dancers are talking about how you know, tough life is when they're not dancing. you got a great cameo from Usher, because the movie is set in 2007. And the music's really good. You know, you listen, you got uh, Flo Rida, you got Usher, you got all those great hits from the 2007 and that era. Um, and they're set to a lot of music montages, which I guess is why some critics were saying it was Scorsese. But I mean, this is, this is Scorsese light with a bottom L. I mean, L-I-T-E. I mean, there's nothing here uh, is resembling the master if you're looking in terms of Goodfellas or Wolf of Wall Street. Because like I said, it becomes fairly predictable at that point on because now what's happened is a financial crisis has hit and the girls aren't making much money. And now the Russians have come in. And if you give them 300 bucks, well, they do special stuff in the, you know, in the champagne room. And all of a sudden, the dancers who just want to work, make a little money, can't get by. So what is Constance Wu going to do? What is Destiny and Ramona going to do? Well, now they go into crime. And they start seducing guys, go to a bar, and see a guy who looks, you know, kind of nerdish. But it looks like he's got some money. You know, you and it's funny. You go through the whole sequence. You check his watch, check his ring. He's got a little bling. You start drinking with him. And then literally, they drug these guys. They put drugs in the alcohol drug them, take them back to their place or the strip club. First, it's the strip club, excuse me. First, they go to the strip club. They got to deal with the club. The club gets a bit of the money. They get a bit of the money. Go there. You drug them, gets a bunch of dances, whatever. You rack up his credit card for all you can, 1000 bucks, 10000 bucks, whatever. Put them in a cab and away you go. And so they start hatching off this theme and money's coming in and uh, Destiny's taking care of her uh, Asian grandmother who's living with her. So that's good news. Ramona's got plenty of money. Okay, they, they keep doing it. But then it goes to the next level, right? Now, all of a sudden, the clubs don't want to be involved. Okay, now they start doing this in their personal domiciles. Okay, now a couple of the girls aren't as reliable. Okay, now the guys uh, seem to be get suspicious more often. And so, you know, you get this real morality play now because, you know, Destiny starts to question how much she wants to do this. Literally, this crime, whereas Ramona is just ruthless and doesn't care at all costs. As, you know, these guys want it anyways. You know, that we're, 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 we're not taking advantage of them. We're just having a couple of drinks with them. And you know, one thing leads to another. Okay, the next thing you know, they're drugged. And all of a sudden, they're losing other money. Well, tough luck. You should have been at home with your wife or your girlfriend or, you know, out with your significant other and doing something else. So I thought at that point, you know, it really just devolves into a series of cliches. And, you know, they're really unsympathetic characters. And the actual decision, the actual verdict which was given, given against these girls is laughable. I mean, this rampant crime being taken over and over. And again, you can look up the actual story to see what happened. But I thought the first third of the film was fine. It was decent. It was entertaining. But after that, I was disappointed. I did not think it lived up to this 87% Rotten Tomatoes score. So unfortunately, Hustlers, I'm giving two Maple Leafs. Joe, I know you're really crestfallen because you were really excited to go see this movie. I know. I know. I'm, I'm really sad that I wasn't able to go to the theater with you in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and we could have experienced this together. Uh, it it kind of, I feel like what you're saying, though, it kind of sounds about right with what you would expect from a movie like this. And I've always liked Jennifer Lopez's career trajectory. So it's interesting that uh, her and her husband have this project that they can have worked on going forward. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is a good comeback role for her. I thought she was really good in the movie. But anybody who says, like, you know, Oscars with Hustlers, it's insane. To be honest with you, maybe my issue isn't even with the film. Because as I'm describing, I mean, Two It Beliefs is perfectly serviceable. I think my issue is more with Rotten Tomatoes. The fact they gave it 87%, I'm like, that's insane. That's lunacy. I mean, but as you said, the movie gives you what you expect. As far as a movie that you wouldn't expect what it gives you, Jojo Rabbit. It is a World War II comedy 
which has taken the world by storm. Just won this year's People's Choice Award in my hometown of Toronto. The Toronto Film Festival, that is a major prize in terms of the Oscars. I said with regards to Joker, which won the Golden Line at the Venice Film Festival, away we go. Now the Oscar race has begun. Well, now Jojo Rabbit is in. Are you ready for this story? The film follows a young German boy who turns his idol Adolf Hitler into an imaginary friend. I read this article in Hollywood Reporter, the fact that this was Taika's dream project. Nobody's like, wait, wait, a Hitler comedy? Like, yep, that's what I'm doing. Uh, the film also stars Sam Rockwell, Scarlett Johansson. Second place, and by the way, this is going to be a big Oscar heavyweight, Noah Baumbach, semi-autobiographical divorce comedy drama, marriage story. It got Scarlett Johansson, Adam Driver. This got rave reviews overseas as well, and it received universal acclaim in Venice and now in Toronto. Third place given to Bong Joon-ho's class satire, Parasite. Many are predicting could be a rare foreign language Best Picture nominee. Yeah, that already won the uh, Palm d'Or there at Cannes. Last seven winners of the People's Choice Award have all either won or been nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. So Jojo Rabbit's getting nominated at the very least. And previous winners include Slumdog Millionaire, Precious, 12 Years a Slave, The King's Speech, Room, and Green Book last year. Once the Audience Award, and then it won Best Picture. Joe, are you ready for Jojo Rabbit? I'm I'm super pumped to see this movie. I love a heartwarming story and revisionist history. And I also I just want to see a comedy be nominated for the Oscars. There's so many good comedies that are put out every year, but they never get any love from the Academy. So hopefully this will break the mode. Yeah, I would hope so as well. Uh, James Gunn confirming the full cast for Suicide Squad. Margot Robbie's back. Viola Davis. Margot Robbie was the best part of the movie. I mean, she was great. And you saw like so many women mimicking her as far as their uh, Halloween outfits. Harley Quinn. Uh, raging all over the place. But you've also got Taika Watiti now back in the mix. New cast member along with Idris Elba, John Cena, Pete Davidson. One previous cast member who will not be returning is Will Smith. Previously reported that Elba would be replacing Smith as Deadshot, but Variety broke the news in April that Deadshot will not be in the Suicide Squad. Guardians of the Galaxy director Dunn wrote the second Suicide Squad installment, tells the story of a group of supervillains forced by the government to work for good and save mankind. One of the all-time movies that made, like, I want to say $850 million worldwide and just is an atrocious, flaming waste of time. I agree with you 100%. I saw it in theaters, and literally the best part of the movie was when Will Smith turned to the camera and said, so what are we, some sort of suicide squad? <laughs> and the theater erupted, and that, that was literally the best part, in my opinion, of the movie. Right, because people started to think, should we just take our own lives rather than just sit through the rest of this movie? <laughs> SNL announcing three? No, make that two. New feature players for its upcoming 45th season. Chloe Feynman, Shane Gillis, and Bowen Yang all appearing on the new season of SNL. This is real groundbreaking news here because Yang joined SNL as a staff writer last season and is the first full Asian series regular in SNL history. Ooh, but then the Shane Gillis news hit. SNL firing one of its most recent hires. That's right, days after videos of the comedian making bigoted comments came to light. SNL spokesperson on behalf of Lauren Michaels said, after talking with Shane Gillis, we have decided that he will not be joining SNL. We want SNL to have a variety of voices and points of views within the show. We hired Shane on the strength of his talent as comedian and his impressive audition for SNL. We were not aware of his prior remarks that have surfaced over the past few days. The language he used is offensive, hurtful, and unacceptable. We are sorry that we did not see these clips earlier and that our vetting process was not up to our standard. Following news of his ouster, Gillis wrote on Twitter, I'm a comedian who is funny enough to get on SNL. That can't be taken away. He added, of course, I wanted an opportunity to prove myself at SNL, but I understand it would be too much of a distraction. I respect the decision they made. I'm honestly grateful for the opportunity. I was always a mad TV guy anyway. It's a pretty funny line there at the end. Uh, but it's not funny what happened in the video, which surfaced very, very quickly. This was uh, him and a comedian, Matt McCusker's Matt and Shane's Secret Podcast. In one since-deleted video, Gillis said, let the effing 
Blank lived there. It's a uh, slur against Asian Americans. He also mocked a Chinese accent. The language barrier says Chinatown's effing nuts. Uh, there's a lot of talk about cancel culture, and comedians are meant to be given the safe space. But uh, I think in this instance, Joe, they made the right decision. I mean, this this was a huge blowback against what he said, and this isn't you know this isn't like hey some tweet I sent ten years ago. This was pretty vile material relatively recently. One hundred percent agree, and 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 he also has a history of it, a recent history of it, and it just seems that SNL has always had a diversity problem, and. Uh, they've hired cast members. Leslie Jones has announced that she's leaving the show after five seasons, but even her hiring was in reaction to a lack of diversity. And this guy, instead of apologizing for his comments, he kind of doubled down on Twitter and said, I'm a comedian, I take shots, and sometimes you miss, when really what he said was just offensive. Yeah, that's uh, well said by you, Joe. And uh, I think SNL clearly in this case made the right decision. All right, that's your entertainment news and your review of Hustlers. Now it's time for our special guest. Seriously, what's the good of having a podcast if you can't just bring your boys on? All right, my guy, Cabral Richards, you know him as Cabby. Been friends for 23 years. Uh, fall of 96, first year Ryerson, RTA. He's made me laugh as hard as anybody over that time. We got our break together in sports television at The Score, and uh, each of us have had wonderful successes. But honestly, he's the most popular person I know. He's got more friends than anybody I know. Everybody I ever meet says, I, when I grow up, I want to be Cabby. Anybody who works in sports wants to be him. And now I'm so proud of him because he has taken all of that goodwill and love and reputation that he has built up single-handedly by himself, his own creativity, his own brilliance, and now he's transferred it down here in the United States where I predict he will be a roaring success. His new show, make sure you check it out. If you're an NFL fan, I know all of you are, 12.15 Eastern every Sunday. It's the BR Betting Show. So Bleacher Report's betting show. You can get the app, download it very easy, or watch on YouTube as well. He's great with Kelly, the entire crew, Chad Johnson, and others. And in addition to all of that, he is a huge movie fan as well. A true original in a sea imitators. Welcome to my man, Sea Ridge. Cab, how we doing, man? Wow, that was evidently the Venmo went through. Thank you for that wonderful <laughs> uh, introduction. That was, that was tremendous. I, I do appreciate that very much. No, you gave me a very flowery introduction when I was on your podcast. It's about time I finally repaid the favor, and uh, I, I, I'm still upset. I'm still pissed. I never got you on Levitard's show. I feel like as a friend, that's the one thing I really could have done for you that you would have appreciated. No, I, and I do appreciate that because you are, you are a guest host quite often, and you asked, and I was like, oh, I don't know if I've earned my stripes yet because you know to get, to get that seal of approval on the Levitard show, that's like, that's like a thing for both of us, and obviously you were – you were um, you were brought in, and and Dan was a huge fan of yours, and and then you know the obviously the joke on the show is like, how did he get past security? How did he get in? And then all of a sudden, you're doing Yankee games, and you're welcome to Tangiers. Like you're using some material <laughs> so that you guys created on on Levitard show in actual MLB broadcast, which was so tremendous to hear you and Kirchin. I, I know. Uh, Kirchin's one of your favorite humans alive, and and that was so. I've been equally impressed with you as you have with been with me. No, I appreciate it, brother. And of course, you were always listening to the podcast. By the way, Cab's podcast when he was all those years, eight years at TSM was Cabby Presents. First and foremost, new podcast forthcoming. Where am I going to be able to listen to you if I'm driving around looking for a pod? Uh, I'm not sure yet. It is it is TBD, but I do have a gripe, not a gripe, but I do have an issue with your your. your 
this was maybe a, a month ago or something. You had a podcast where you did like the Mount Rushmore of films based on music or based on <laughs> yeah, inspired um, by music. Or inspired like by this. music. See, you know, it was it was it was too I don't know, too vague to um to uh uh what am I trying categorize. to say? Categorize, yeah. It wasn't I, a great I, subject, you're right. To, to categorize. I'm sorry. Hopefully you can edit that long space. But um you know do, do biopics count, or is it just like I know you were speaking? I think with uh, Mankiewicz or someone previously about the movie Magnolia, which was right. entirely based on the music of Amy Mann when um, uh, P.T. Anderson had started writing the script. So, like, does that count? Or you know, there was no, there was no Ray. There was no What's Love Got to Do with It. There was no nice. even Bohemian Rhapsody is a tour de force Ugh. performance by Rami Malek. But then, like. You know, I was thinking, and I and I didn't tweet this, and I, I've been like collecting some. You know, I got a I fired a, a barrage of tweets, and I do use your rating scale of the of the four Maple Leafs. I, I, I do I've appreciate seen, like, that. Four or five movies that I haven't uh, that I haven't um, uh, uh, put out there to say, hey, this is these are the movies I like I, I like or dislike. But um, I also wanted to mention on the music uh, films, the Mount Rushmore, uh, Whiplash. Should be oh, on yeah. there, and also ba- and also Baby Driver, which was edited to music, and I can't remember the director's name, but uh, Ansel- Edgar Wright. Is- oh, Edgar Wright, yes, who was a longtime collaborator with Simon Pegg, and uh, um, oh, what's his writing partner's name? The heavier set guy who's really really funny. They did Shaun of the Dead, and they did. Um, uh, they've done like three or four movies. I can't remember that actor's name. I just love that uh, you described Ed- him as the heavy set guy. That's awesome. Well, I'm not going to say it. Well, listen, I've been a chubby bastard my whole life. So, <laughs> no, yeah, you know, I'll save your chub- life right now. But, okay, fine. But I've also been uh, I've also been legitimately fat, and I've also been husky, chubby, all these words to describe. <laughs> and I've never said big bones because I think that's a lie. I've just been, I've just been a, a plus-size model my whole life. Me and Eric Stone Street. No, 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 listen, Eric Stone Street is much larger than you, okay? I interviewed him at the World Series, giant Royals fan. You and they were not even in the same playground, but I do like the self-deprecation. <laughs> and, I, and I can appreciate it. I've heard my mom go shopping at, like, uh, Zellers in the Husky section. I mean, that, that is definitely a, a term that comes to mind. I'm trying to look up who his yeah, co-writer absolutely. is. I don't see it. Simon Pegg, Edgar Wright. He went on to co-write Star. Yeah, Shaun of the Dead, all those. Nick Frost, is that the guy you're thinking of? Nick Frost, yeah, that's his collaborator, yeah. All right. All good. I, I do appreciate What's Love Got to Do With It is a great one. I'm with you. Lawrence Fishburne, fantastic as Ike Turner, as was Angela Bassett, both of them. Angela Academy Bassett, Award that was the greatest yeah. performance of her career, and Lawrence Fishburne was, like, electric. It was, it was awesome. Anyway, those are, those are some omissions, so if you ever redo your Mount Rushmore of that particular category, some other titles to think about. <laughs> Whiplash, am I rushing or dragging? Very good. Um, I yeah. want to talk about Spike because, listen, we haven't actually discussed this, you and I, which is the fact is huge Spike Lee fans from, from listen, major ones, do the right thing, Malcolm X, to get on the bus, Shibuya roll call, shout out to RT. I mean, yeah. I want to know what your reaction was when Spike finally won the Oscar. And I want to know, I have not heard your thoughts on Black Klansman. So give me both of those. The moment when you saw Spike finally win, a guy, a director you and I both adore, and particularly that film he's recognized for, for adapted screenplay. I appreciate how much you championed the film last year on the previous iteration of Cinephile. You and I think your former producer Stanzig was also a big fan of Black Klansman. Uh, it was it was amazing to see. Like I, I mean, his his pure exuberance, jumping into the arms 
of uh, Sam Jackson who, who announced that one, right? Who presented yeah. that award? Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was amazing. I don't know. I don't know if that's his best movie or. I mean, I suppose it's probably in the top five. I think his earlier work may have been a little bit more poignant. But however, this is such a crazy. It was such a crazy story, which is based on real life events that. You know, they say that life is stranger than fiction or crazier than fiction, whichever the, the phrase the phrase is. Um, I, I was I was just so happy, happy for him being a longtime fan. And, you know, Spike, it's like I, it, it's it was nice to see him return to form because there was a period of malaise in there. My dude, like Inside Man was his last really solid movie. And he was a director for hire. Although he did like the, he did put it, you know, he's got that one actor that was in He Got Game that played like the um, played the agent uh, was that was trying to woo Ray Allen. I think she was in Inside Man, and he's got a couple of his like New York guys that he like to put in his films. Um, but you know, Inside Man was what for oh five oh six maybe it was it was oh six Cabot, and you're totally right. After that, I mean, it was like twelve years of irrelevance. All due respect. Yeah, and I tried watching She's Gotta Have It on Netflix, and I really don't like the main character, so I found it a tough watch. Like, I want to root for characters. I'm watching Succession right now, and everybody Mm -hmm. is deplorable. Everybody's just like an awful, vile human. So I'm like, who do I root for? I end up rooting for Greg, the kid who's like the nephew on the outside because he's a little bit naive, and he's still not completely influenced and sullied by the uh by the family although we can see his character evolving i'm not sure if you're watching succession on hbo are you no but i I do support brian cox how is he on the show oh he's amazing he's amazing like and he was also in uh 25th hour shout out to that movie that was one of spike's uh uh, great films as well oh he's just what when he comes on the screen it's like the the uh the temperament and the temperature of the room changes when he's in there because his his character is so caustic and um, I'm not sure if Adam, Adam McKay made him, they say it made him Rupert, uh, Rupert Murdoch or um, a blend of Rupert Murdoch's family, a little Roger bit of Ailes. Trump's family. Yeah. Roger Ailes. Well, Roger Ailes. Um, yeah. He didn't, he didn't quite own the, uh, the networks in the same way that Rupert Murdoch did. I think Rupert Murdoch is also a Brit and Brian Cox keeps his English accent in the, in the show. Um, but that Roger Ailes show on uh, Showtime with um, Russell Crowe was tremendous. And did you watch that one? No, I heard it's awesome. And there's an actual there's oh. a Roger Ailes movie coming out too. I, I got to see the show and the movie. By the way, the Ailes movie cab it's called Bombshell. It's directed by Jay Roach and it's starring Charlize Theron, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie. So they're really focusing oh. Oh, in on. Oh, uh, I have seen that. Yes, yeah. I've seen that trailer. Wow, that's a powerhouse yeah. cast right there. Okay, you, you ready for this? Guess who's playing Roger Ailes? I can't wait to tell you this. Oh, my goodness. Um, John Goodman? No, good guess, though. Another John. He was in Harry and the Hendersons. He was in Cliffhanger. Uh, he was in... John... Uh, oh, he, he was, was in, in Dexter. He was in... Uh, oh, my gosh. He was in the campaign with Dan Aykroyd. All the scenes were with Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> John Lithgow? Yes, John Lithgow is playing Roger Ailes. Wow. I mean, that's a pretty good choice. I mean, Russell yeah. Crowe absolutely slaughtered the role. So, unfortunately, Lithgow is going to be uh, compared to Roger, Roger, oh, sorry, Russell Crowe. But, wow, mm-hmm. that's, I'll definitely see that movie. Yeah, and uh, Megan Kelly oh, never looks so good. Yeah. 
By the way, why do you love eight men out so much? Like you, nice. Anytime that you've had you you you've spoken about sports movies, like eight men out was kind of boring. And I know you love John Sales, but like that yes. can't be the best baseball movie of all time. I mean, if if uh, the oh my god, if the natural ended the way the book was written, that would for sure be the greatest baseball movie of all time. Uh, listen, let's go to comedies because you mentioned Dan Aykroyd, who you were terrific. By the way, check it out on YouTube. A lot of Cab's clips are available. Cabby presents. You can go see a lot of his interviews, which he did out of his own pocket, which Dan Aykroyd is up there. Uh, Will Ferrell, you've interviewed before. Tell me about Will Ferrell. Tell me about Dan Aykroyd. So my Will Ferrell story is the first time I met him, I was at a Manny Pacquiao and Oscar De La Hoya fight in Vegas. And TNT, we've, we've flown down with uh, TNT and what I didn't know is in order for them to get stars to go to these boxing, these big events, they would tell like, and be able to say to the media, Oh, so-and-so and all like these 10 celebrities were coming to the fight is they would have a pre-party and the celebs would have to actually pick up their tickets at the pre-party. And like, Oh, that's, that's pretty ingenious. So Will Ferrell showed up minutes before the fight wearing a brown Oh, goodness. It was maybe 20 or 30 years old. It was like a fur coat, and he said it was made out of Himalayan house cat. And he had these <laughs> flip-up sunglasses. He was wearing a fedora. Like, it was definitely some pageantry. Like, he was doing his best um, uh, Frank... Uh, oh, my gosh. What was Denzel's character's name in, in American Gangsters? American Frank Underwood? Gangsters, no. like the, Frank Underwood is Kevin oh. Spacey's character. Frank, hang on. I'll look at that. <laughs> anyway, it's like a famous drug dealer invented uh blue um oh my goodness i'm like i'm like all over the place anyway so frank lucas at this frank lucas thank you he's at this party and i i go up to him like hey will uh my name's cabby i'm just doing a, a quick um set of interviews here from this party before we go to the pacquiao fight can we do an interview he goes i'll only do it in the bathroom i'm like done i signal over my cameraman <laughs> let's go so we walk into the bathroom inside of the um the Wolfgang Puck restaurant at the MGM hotel. The bathroom is a one seater, a toilet. That's it. So in this, so my producer, we all get in there. It's a camera guy. My producer, Dave Cricks, he locks the door. Myself, Will Farrell. It is a tight fit. And we proceed to do an interview in the bathroom. And I ask him about like fighting as a kid and like, you know, his outfit, obviously, and he, you know, I, he said it's made out of Himalayan house cat, house cat, and I'm like, it looks like it needs to take a plus bath, and um, I was, you know, when you're dealing with a, a guy who is a, a legendary comedic performer, you just throw him softballs, and just hopefully he just knocks him out of the park, which he did. At one point, he, he like, pantomimed, punching me in the balls. He got about a, a millimeter from my nuts. I was like, oh! I really thought he was going to hit me in the, in the nuts. Because what, what, what am I going to do about it? Am I going to fight Will Ferrell in the bathroom? No, I'm just going to take the, the, the shot and then keep it moving. So that was my experience. I met him two other times, and he was, no, three other times. At a curling event, he was dressed as Ron Burgundy, and then I went to a press junket with him and Kevin Hart uh, for the movie oh, when, when Kevin Hart goes to jail. Kevin Hart is prepping Will Ferrell to go to jail. What was that one called? Oh, um, Get Hard? Get Hard, which was, which was funny. It's one of Kevin Hart's better movies. Um, anyway, and then Dan Aykroyd was just such a gentleman. He was lovely. He had a, had, you know, we spoke for about half an hour and he told me about the golden days of like Canadian comedy. And there's this one house at 1063 Avenue Road in Toronto where 
all these, and you referenced it in a, in a recent podcast, and I appreciate that. And you also met, met, referenced uh, Martin Short on Comedian in Cars, Getting Coffee with Jerry Seinfeld. I'm going to push back on you. And I think, the, I think the Jamie Foxx one was the best of this particular. I, I did love Jamie Foxx doing the Robert Downey Jr. impression was incredible. Yeah, he's like, dude, dude. <laughs> Which brings me to Quentin Tarantino, long celebrated as one of the best filmmakers of his era. But you have brought up, I believe, a timely and well-positioned critique of his films, which is why the hell does he got to use the N-word so much? Now, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's different, but specifically, I remember Jackie Brown, 97, we're in second year Ryerson, and you're like, dude, we get it, like enough. What, what is it that you think um, that angers you so much about it? Is it just the fact it's so prolific and gratuitous? It is def- it's definitely gratuitous, man. And, you know, I don't know how Sam Jackson feels. I've never heard him speak about it. But, like, Tarantino, because his mom dated some black dudes, I, I feel like he felt like he got some kind of a pass. Or maybe he's got some black friends. I don't know. But, like, just even him saying it in Pulp Fiction, like, this isn't a dead bloom boom sto- uh, storage or whatever, when he plays Jimmy, like, in his house coat in his kitchen, like, Yo, why are you why are you writing that for you to say? Like, I know you're gonna put you put yourself in your movie, that's fine, but then you are dropping N words? Like, get out of here. And then Django was I mean, Jackie Brown was gratuitous. Django was just like, it made me hate the movie. I'm like, yes, I understand that this is a horrible time in American history. And we see how brutal it was with the scenes that you filmed, like the the, the Mandingo's fighting and Obviously, like you didn't like Django didn't even get to kill Leo DiCaprio in the end or Steven or maybe he shot Steven. But he but I think it was Christoph Waltz who gets to kill either DiCaprio or or or, uh, Sam Jackson's character and not even giving that moment to Django, who was like, it's his story. It's his arc. He's like he goes through all this, this, this horrid. No, actually, his wife goes through even more torment and disgusting punishment uh, and, uh, than, than he does. But I don't know, man. And then, like, this is my, this is my thing with, with uh, Quentin Tarantino. Can you make a movie that's under two hours? Can you write one that's under, I, like, just give me one that's 145, a tight 145. What's the point of time in Hollywood was a bloated, what was it, like 230, 245? 240. At 240, and as you noted, you were kind enough to listen to the last cinephile. You were aware of the, the news item that I read in which the Netflix cut's going to be over four. I mean, and I think I said via text, like, I'll probably watch it, but I, it's going to be way down on the queue. Like, I'll watch 10 different miniseries, true life, true crime miniseries, a couple of comedy specials, uh, you know, before I get to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood the friggin' anthology, like the Ken Burns director's cut. Like it's like the movies. I saw this movie, um, the, uh, oh my gosh, Ansel Elsort, Elgort is the, um, is a star. Uh, oh my goodness. Why am I forgetting this? Goldfinch, the Goldfinch. And I didn't, I didn't check. And I don't know if you do this, but do you look at the duration of the films before you see the films or you just go in having either read a blurb or seen the trailer and just watch it? 
No, two things that have changed very much so when we were hanging together. One, I used to love trailers, but now I've actually followed your lead. I try to avoid the trailers now because you're right, they give away too much, and I won't read much of the critics anymore. I'll just kind of see, okay, Rotten Tomatoes, a couple quick blurbs, that's it, because you have influenced me. I'm like, yeah, they give away too much stuff. And you're right, running time, I absolutely check it. <laughs> For example, It Chapter 2 is like 159 minutes. I'm like, dude, there's no way I'm going to sit through that thing. Uh, you, Hussein, Randall, I mean, all you guys, huge Eddie Murphy fans. The fact that Eddie is going to do stand up to the again. Listen, uh, is there any element of trepidation? Because because Delirious and Raw are so famous and the pinnacles of stand up comedy for anybody, any age, any fear of Eddie going back to New Step tomorrow, or do you think he's going to be as great as he ever was? Wow. I, I don't know if there's ever been more anticipation for a performer than an Eddie Murphy stand-up comedy spot. Maybe, I guess maybe the first Chappelle, but, but Eddie is a bigger star than Chappelle. He, his, um, I mean, the, the earth revolved around his orbit for a time in the eighties. He was him and Arnold Schwarzenegger, I guess Sylvester Stallone, those are their their biggest stars in the eighties. And Eddie, man, there's got, I just don't, nobody knows what he's going to do. And as he mentioned to Jerry Seinfeld in that episode, like he's got to go workshop that act for a while to get it to be a tight hour, hour five. I think comedians do about 65 minutes is sort of the sweet spot. And who knows what Eddie, I mean, his, he's so removed from Hollywood. And so like, what is his perspective on the world going to be? Like, who are the young people that he's hanging out with other than his kids that will give him some relevant, I don't know, some relevant stories, relevant um, like topics or, or things to, to chew on or to make fun of in this culture right now. Cause it's gotta be, by the time it comes out, it's probably 2020. So it's gotta be super 2020, you know, and maybe not lean on the impressions that he did. Like in Delirious, he's doing impressions of TV shows from like the fifties and sixties. Norton, my friend, how would you like to meet me? Or the man? You know what I mean? And then like, Eddie Murphy Raw, he's, he's talking about going to see Rocky and making fun of Italian-Americans. Hey, you know, so like, what is, what is he going to make fun of in 2020? Like, does he have a great Obama impression? Does he have a great, like, Kevin Hart or, like, Oprah? Like, what are the stories that he's going to tell that can resonate with the audience? Now, you know, I just saw, I saw Andrew Dice Clay two weeks ago at the Tropicana in Vegas, and the audience, bro, was like, 60 year olds. Like I was the youngest person in that room and I went to see dice because I had a little bit of nostalgia and everybody sure. in that room had the same nostalgia and they wanted dice to be dice and he didn't disappoint. And at the end of his act, he just went back to like those nursery rhymes from like 1988. Yeah. And he ends with like 10 or 12 of those in a row and the audience loved it. Cause that's what they came to see. Just as the way Seinfeld has, has mentioned to either Ricky Gervais, or another comedian is like, they come to see the act. And the, I think the other comedian is like, well, they want to see new stuff. And then Seinfeld's like, no, play them, give them the hits. They want to see the hits. It's like they want to see the Eagles. They want to see them perform Hotel California. And so, so Dice Clay gave you a bit of the hit. So I wonder if Eddie's going to give us some of the hits, the impressions of like Bill Cosby or, or Richard Pryor or these comedians or these huge figures from the seventies and eighties, or does he have some new ones? Does he have a Drake? Like, can he do a Drake impression, which would be awesome. Like singing like Drake being super emo. 
I don't know, but I'm I'm super. I, I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I was saddened in the episode with Seinfeld, the comedians in cars getting coffee, that he said like Eddie Murphy felt threatened by, or excuse me, Richard Pryor felt threatened by him, and I'm like, what? Like you're Richard Pryor, man. Like you're a genius. And Eddie, as he pointed out, was like, I revered the guy, man. Like I was enthralled by him. But I found out that if if Richie knew I was coming, like he wouldn't he wouldn't perform. I'm like, that's wild to me. But isn't that kind of awesome to hear that anecdote? And he also said that Bill Cosby was kind of nasty to him as well. I mean, obviously, he chides Bill Cosby in, I think, Raw. And he has that great, both Cosby and Pryor impersonations in both. Or maybe it was Delirious. <laughs> but it's and like, I, I was like at the edge of my seat watching on my phone on an airplane, uh, watching this episode, which was like 40 or 41 minutes. I, I suppose it, it, even that, that episode didn't um, live up to expectations, the expectations that I had. However, I was so intrigued by his, by those anecdotes. And I wonder, you know, like, like does Eddie Murphy have crazy Mike Tyson and Michael Jackson stories? Cause whenever he says, Michael, it's like Michael Jackson, or it, he could say Michael to me, Mike Tyson. And those two those two guys were the biggest stars on the planet in the eighties and nineties. So I'm just curious as to, you know, what, what he's going to, what he's going to give us. And I suppose I should probably lower my expectations, but I just can't because I'm such a huge fan of, of Eddie's. How do, how do you think he's going to do, or what do you think he's going to talk about? I'm with you, man. I, I think like it's impossible to match the expectations, right? Like it's it's like an athlete trying to you know go back on the ice or go back on the field or go back on the court 20 years later. Like I just I think it's impossible to match those expectations. But I'm thrilled that he's doing it because I think the easy thing to say would be, hey, man, I, I can never top Delirious and Raw. Like every year those get better than they were. Like if they were great back then, people think that they're brilliant and genius and iconic like I can never touch that but I'm like hey you know what still try he still has something to stay he still has a voice like he still has material so I'm I'm glad he's doing it I I, I worry for him that he won't be able to match expectations but I'm thrilled that he's doing it. I'm thrilled. He's like I don't care man like I, I want to do it I want to be funny and I'm with you the workshop thing is wild to me I'm like how do you know it's going to be funny like you do need to practice right you do need to get some reps of people who just hey is this funny or is this not funny like Larry David when he does Kirby enthusiasm Rich Eisen was telling the story in his pod he was like you know, there's a, there's a handful of people that actually go and watch the Kirby Enthusiasm episodes and they give feedback. Okay, this wasn't good. This was funny. This wasn't funny. And they workshop it. Like, it's impossible for Eddie to just go out there and crush it without getting some sort of feedback. So I don't know how he's going to be able to do that. And then also, who's in his life to be the arbiter of funny? Like, who right. who does he respect enough to be like, yeah, maybe maybe change that word or... Or maybe maybe this will be funnier. Like, who's going to tell? Who does Eddie Murphy respect enough to take criticism or constructive criticism from? Like, is it Arsenio? Is it is it anybody that's younger than him? Or is he going like Larry Miller? And I mean, like, <laughs> yes. I mean, I, you know, your guy Gary Shandling's not not with us anymore. But was Gary right. Shandling a guy? Or does he say like Seinfeld? You we grew up in the same era. Can you give me some notes? Does he humble himself to get notes from anybody or does he just let the audience decide? I think in that episode uh, where Seinfeld was uh, talking to J Jamie Foxx uh, when they're in the diner, he's like, it's, we remember what you did to the audience. And basically the audience tells you if you're funny or not. And you know, who does Eddie have in his life to tell him that's funny, that needs more work or did you just rely on the audience? Yeah.
You mentioned Larry Miller, a comic of the past. It reminds me of your Seinfeld story when you saw Jerry and George Wallace in Central Park and Seinfeld kind of blew you off. And then you, I believe you yelled, George Wallace is funnier. And he gave you a pump fist. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, 97, my first time in New York. I'm walking through Central Park and I had a film camera because back then the digital format didn't exist. And then I just walked past them and they were just, you know, on a stroll in Central Park. It was like, I don't know maybe two o'clock in the afternoon. The park wasn't particularly busy. I was like, oh my gosh, that was Seinfeld and George Wallace, who I used to watch on like Caroline's Comedy Hour. I circled back, do you mind if I, like, can I take a photo of you guys? And Seinfeld put his hand up, hand up as though I was the paparazzi because I had the camera around my, around my neck, but I didn't have my hands on the camera. He's like, no thanks. And he just walked, he just totally blew me off. And I was like, so I, I hated Seinfeld ever since. And I think I've only seen the final episode of Seinfeld because it was a cultural moment. And I watched it, I think at my friend Henderson's house, but I just hated that. I, just, I was like, bleep this guy and bleep this show, bleep him in his whole set. Yeah. And Henderson, Henderson will always be underrated. Uh, by the way, Eddie Murphy, <laughs> Eddie Murphy is hosting SNL December 21st. So maybe we'll get maybe a little bit of stand up there, but you're right. I don't, it's going to be amazing. Last one for you. Cause I know you love a good comedy central roast as much as I do. Did you watch the Alec Baldwin episode, which was this past Sunday? No, but I saw you tweet about it. I got it. I have to see, it. I know it's probably vile and just amazing. I know you, you praised Robert De Niro. It was like, what an unexpected get for a comedy roast. Um, but I haven't seen it. I just, I just know those are going to be amazing. Je Jeff Ross is, is on it, right? He's the roast master. Yeah, he uh, he is incredible. Uh, Sean Hayes is actually the host. He's really funny. But I mean, when Ross goes up there, Nikki Glaser actually very funny as well. I mean, the Ken oh, Jong. She's, she's funny. She's funny. Yeah, I didn't realize Nikki Glaser was that funny. But th those roasts, man, they're I love. I've, I I've sometimes rewatch Alec Baldwin on comedians and cars getting coffee because I think he's one of the best. Yes, and he just got these one-liners that just zing. Maybe it's the editing, but that dude just comes out swinging, man. And he's just, he's excellent. Uh, um, oh, yeah, I wanted to mention from the Fox, the Fox episode of, of this is the last science. I mean, I'm pumping the guy's tires. I say I hate him, but then I'm watching his content on, uh, I used to watch comedians getting cars and coffee on, 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 uh, Crackle. Snackle? Crackle. Crackle. I used to, yeah. used to have to watch web episodes. I'm like, what is the show? I'm like, this is kind of cool. Anyway. Fox got the impression of his pit bulls and like when he goes out to feed his pit bulls in the, in the yard, like one pit bull locks the gate. He's like, we just want to have a talk, talk with you. And his impression of the pit bulls are so funny. I've been to Jamie Foxx's house. That is he, that dude has a campus, my dude. Like he's got a full basketball court in his backyard. He's got a, he's got a recording studio, like a pool house turned recording studio, a big ass pool. And in the middle of Jamie Foxx's house, like <clears throat> once you get past the staircase, by the kitchen, he's got his awards display case and the Oscar, the best actor award for his uh, portrayal of Ray 2004 is in the middle of the display case. And this, this, this display case, excuse me, is probably the size of, um, of like three or four parking spots. Like it's huge. And I didn't realize he, he's won so many awards like MTV movie awards and NCAA CP image awards, but the Oscar is right, like eye line, right in the middle of the, of the trophy case as it should. He's even got like some sports um, memorabilia in there, but it's, it's a, it's a sight to see. Just look at it like, wow, man, you totally earned that. It was a, an amazing performance. What should have been it, on your music, Mount Rushmore, a non-verse. 
<laughs> By the way, was Davo the guy who invited you? That's Jamie Foxx's guy. Because Celebrity All-Star Game, Davo's running around everywhere. And I'm about to interview Jamie Foxx. He goes, you have to mention his sunglasses. And I'm like, what? Like, we're just going to talk baseball, whatever movies. No, no, no. You have to mention his sunglasses. Davo is his dude. The sunglasses, I think, are like 20 bucks. They're great sunglasses from the Jamie Foxx line. But this year, he was supposed to play in it. But, but he was scared of flying. It was crazy. Apparently, he's like a very... Uh, you know, he's got some fear of flying a little bit or just, you know, any sort of turbulence. So he was supposed to play in the Celebrity All-Star Game for the third straight year. He's like, hey, the skies don't look good. Boom. He shut it down. Really? That's, I don't know if I believe that because Fox has to travel everywhere to shoot movies. It's not like they're just shooting movies in L.A. And he came to the, um, when, he, when he shot his own movie and was impersonating Stephen A. Smith, I think he, was called, I think he called him Cleveland A. Smith. I think they shot that in Toronto or Charlotte or something, but I don't. That's that's hard to believe if he does have a fear of flying. I did not meet Davo, a guy named Ryan Silverstein, who was um, throwing a charity basketball game at Jamie Foxx's house uh, while the NBA All Star Game was in LA. That's the reason I I got to I got to go there and, and experience some of the game, but so I didn't I didn't get to meet Davo. Or D- Dave, yeah, Devo, Devo. I didn't get to meet him. Yeah, Devo, you're right. Last one for you, Cab, because this has been awesome. But I want to just surprise you here. So it's your choice. You get 30 seconds either on Boaz Yakin's Fresh, which you once said is one of your three favorite movies, <laughs> yes. or, or David Mamet's Spartan, which might be Mamet's most underrated movie, and you have been a champion for that movie. Your choice. Wow. Um, that is, I haven't spoken about either one in a while. I think... After Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, I think The Spanish Prisoner is my next favorite David Mamet movie because awesome. I just didn't see the twist. And yeah. he's such I, I a, watched it again, man, by the way, last were... year. I watched it again last oh, year. Sorry did? to jump in. And Steve Martin is unbelievable. Like, you don't see where he's coming. You're right. You, the whole twist, like, it's, it's, it's so brilliantly constructed. And Campbell Scott feels so duped. Innocent man gone wrong. And the ending with the Asian journalist. And no one ever looks twice at a Chinese tourist. I mean, that movie is yes. brilliant. I'm with you. Yes, um, I uh, haven't seen any of those three movies in a really long time. But Boaz Yakin's Fresh did have a did have an effect on me when it, it came out in '94. I think Black and White. I think it was his first film. And I don't know. I think I think I maybe cried in that movie when I was in high school. But you know, just a young kid, just trying to, you know, and and Sam Jackson was his mentor, just trying to navigate through life. It was I don't know. It was pointed to me at that particular time in my life. And, um, and, and I'm just going to segue quick to sports movies. Remember the Titans, also directed by Boaz Yatin, my favorite of the sports movies, because he doesn't shoot any of the sports sequences in slow motion. So he just he doesn't use that device uh, of slow motion. Everything is in real time, and I appreciate that. That is very cool. Uh, last oh, thought, you've never Rockling, seen. Horrible in that film. I think he played the, uh, I shouldn't say his performance horrible, but it, playing the, I think he played the, uh, a cornerback or something in his early, early film career, and he just got torched in that film. I will watch Succession when you watch The Sopranos. That sounds like a deal. Cabral Richards. <laughs> Shout out to the Bada Binge. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. No problem, man.
Mount Rushmore. Once again, thanks to Cabby, my man Cabral Richards. Fantastic stuff there, breaking down some of his favorite movies and funny memories of the both of us together. We're talking about Brad Pitt because he's got Ad Astra coming out next week, which Joe and I are both going to be seeing. Cannot wait for it, as that appears to have got some uh, Oscar juice behind it. He's also had a strong year with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a film which I gave two and a half Maple Leafs to, but I still did appreciate his performance. So Mount Rushmore Brad Pitt movies. And by the way, we want you to tweet in your suggestions. So tweet us at CinephilePod. C-I-N-E-P-H-I-L-E-P-O-D, or you can tweet me as well, Adnan S. Furk, and let me know what you want us to do for the Mount Rushmore every week here on Cinephile. Best films of Brad Pitt's career, I'm going to go with Fight Club, absolutely iconic. We talked about it last week with Brian Raftery in the best films of 99, and um, honestly, Pitt really owns the screen. One of the studio heads said, nobody's going to want to watch this movie. Guys don't want to see Brad Pitt in his six-pack, and girls don't want to get him to see him beaten up. Who the hell is this movie for, which is a pretty funny line. But uh, he's perfect in the role of Tyler Durden and really commands the screen. I love the movie Seven, and I thought his performance was great. Again, mentor-mentee, him and Morgan Freeman together. Excellent chemistry because it's a, a perilous relationship and one that is really put to the test by Kevin Spacey's homicidal killer. I thought Pitt was great, particularly that final scene, which I guess you could parody now. What's in the box? What's in the box? But I, I thought the whole movie, his acting was really strong, and he was... Um, you know, cocky and smart and funny. He's great as a young detective. And Glorious Bastards, another great performance. Him and Tarantino together. I uh, like the accent. I like the fact his character had some comedy to it. It was a little bit of an oddball. And Moneyball, I will go with, which uh, he was nominated for Best Actor, playing Billy Bean. Billy Bean's never looked so good in his life. As Dallas Braden has told me, Billy Bean would always go around the Oakland Athletics and tell everybody, that's right, Brad Pitt played me, okay? That's how handsome I am. But I think it's a smart movie. It really shows what sabermetrics and analytics do within baseball, but does so in a very relatable way. And Pitt is very charismatic as this general manager whose career flamed out, but he's so smart that he's able to cut corners and find a way to succeed. So my Brad Pitt, Mount Rushmore, is Fight Club, Seven, Inglorious Bastards, and Moneyball. Shout out to True Romance. Honorable mention, I mean, he's great as a stoner, but I just couldn't quite get it in the four. Joe, how about you? And then I agree with you on most of them, except I have to replace Moneyball with A River Runs Through It. Uh, I love that movie. You love your fly fishing. Love my fly. Honestly, I do love my fly fishing. I'm a, I'm a Minnesota boy. I, I grew up fishing. And so I got to go with that movie. Um, and he was so young in that and just commanded the screen, just a future star. Uh, all the makings of it, so evident in that movie. So I would do that. Uh, I agree with you on Moneyball, though. If any baseball fan and how the analytics of the game changed because of what the Oakland A's did, it's definitely a must-watch. I agree with you, man. It's, uh, like I said, a very relatable way of taking Michael Lewis's material and selling it on the big screen, even though Art Howe is still angry at the late Philip Seymour Hoffman for his portrayal of him. The Bada Binge. All right, it is indeed the Bada Binge as we are recapping the entire Sopranos, which uh, our guest Cabral Richards has never seen. My, my man Cab, I don't know what happened there. He made some poor life choices, as he himself will joke. Season 5, Episode 7, written by Terrence Winter, directed by Steve Buscemi. It's called In Camelot. Excellent episode in which Tony meets the mistress of his father. One of the most funniest scenes of the entire show is from Fran conjuring up mixed associations. She dons Tony's JFK captain's hat and imitates Marilyn Monroe's performance of Happy Birthday at Kennedy's inauguration. 
All the layers of Tony's discomfort combined in Fran's dance. A peerless example by the actress Bergen of an actor selling the joke without seeming to be in on it, as well as a peak performance by James Gandolfini. This is, of course, coming from the book, The Soprano Sessions. You should check it out by Alan Sappenwall and Matt Zoller Seitz. It's clear that this combined evocation of the Camelot era 60s and unwanted glimpse of his father's love does turn Tony on. Even beginning to admit this makes him so distressed he falls into stupefied daze. Later on, Malpy tries her hardest to get Tony to look at the full picture of his childhood, recognize that even if Livia was a monster, she didn't become that in a vacuum. She had help from the abusive and unfaithful man she lived with. But he can't accept that because to acknowledge that Johnny Boy was a neglectful and destructive husband and father would require Tony to admit that he is too. And this aspect of Soprano family history is repeating himself. That scene where Olivia in the flashback asked Tony, you know, what happened? And his dad tells him to lie for him, and he does. I mean, it's so sad. You say, okay, the son is basically picking the father's side, and the mom at that point knows, okay, fine. And maybe that sows the seeds of being adversaries until years later she tries to kill him, for God's sakes. You've also got another plot here of Christopher hanging out with recovering addict TV writer J.T. Dolan, played by Tim Daly. And uh, he's a hilarious character. I mean, he, he name drops the shows he's worked on, like Nash Bridges. And he says that he can't get more than 15 bucks when he tries to pawn his Emmy to pay Christopher. To the pawn shop owner, if you had an Oscar, maybe I could give you something, an Academy Award. But TV, what else you got? And among JT's past credits, the CBS Italian-American family drama That's Life, which offers a belated opportunity to strike back at a series whose cast and crew used to brag that their characters weren't in the mob and whose star went on to rec on record chastising The Sopranos for being defamatory and announcing that he would never be on it. Christopher says, what, that fake guinea fest with Paul Servino? That was totally unrealistic. Later on, Junior's talking about his life because he realizes it's become so sad he goes to funerals just to get out of the house and says, my life is only death. I'm living in a grave. I beat prison and for what? I have no children. Will somebody please explain this to me? Next episode's Marco Polo, relatively minor episode, but you do see Angie Bump and Sarah now running Pussy's old body shop repairing Phil's car after the crash that Tony caused during In Camelot. And so that storyline shows, again, how petty Tony is, how much he's punishing Angie for the fact that her husband was a rat. You've also got Tony B's kids. Well, one of them steals a 96 Olympic pen from AJ's closet and says, I love where he lives. And now you see the difference between Tony B and uh, Tony Soprano and the fact that Tony B missed out on all this great stuff and he could sense his resentment. Uh, even there's a great scene of Carmela laying into Mary. By the way, the script is by Michael Imperioli, who plays Christopher. There are Italians all around their closet self-loathing. I just never wanted to believe my mother was one of them. Really good scene there with Carmela. Uh, the main purpose of this episode is you see uh, Tony and uh, Carmela reconcile a little bit because they end up sleeping together in the pool. But it is a momentary respite because in the next episode, Unidentified Black Males, we now focus on Tony and what's happening with his crew including the fact that Eugene lays a savage beating on little Polly because he took offense to a joke implying he was gay. And then you get one of the more shocking episodes, moments rather, ever on an episode, Unidentified Black Males, in which you see Finn, who is the boyfriend of uh, Jimmy Lynn Sigler, Meadow, Vito blowing a security guard in the Esplanade parking lot. And now Finn realizes this is how dangerous that even that joke was of being a better homosexual. Vito's in grave danger if the seeker ever gets out, which means Finn's is in grave danger for even knowing it. And Vito even confronts him outside a portage on quipping, Finn Detrolio, my arch nemesis. And he invites him to a baseball game because he's a Yankees fan and Finn is actually a Padres fan. Instead, Finn feels like he has to go on the lam. Uh, him and Meadow almost break up. And then just to end the argument, he actually proposes to Meadow. It's crazy. It's a very uh, Soprano-esque move just to figure your way out of this thing. Uh, later on, 
the resentment between Carmela and Tony comes back because Carmela discovers that Tony has taken token meetings with top area attorneys, so they're conflicted out of representing Carmela. It's a really dirty way of doing things as far as the divorce uh, law is concerned. And Tony even celebrates his victory by saying, the only reason you have anything is because of my effing sweat. You knew every step of the way exactly how it works. Uh, later on, you see Carmela's reaction when Meadow tells her about Finn's proposal and Carmela, as the fellows write, weeps not with joy, but for her daughter getting engaged to a nice guy who couldn't be more unlike Tony. Next episode is Cold Cuts. Good episode here with Tony B and Tony S go out to the farm. And early on, you get Christopher telling the stories about how much he used to like hanging out with those guys, but they'd always make fun of him and end up really hurting his feelings. And so here he's driving up to the farm feeling pretty good. They're having a good time. Tony B gets called Ichabod Crane. Tony B is making jokes. But eventually, once Soprano shows up, uh, they start making fun of him for the fact that he's a recovering alcoholic. And at one point, you know, Tony says, if you recover your effing balls, give us a call. And later, you get a real vulnerable scene here with Christopher just going home crying, thinking about the sadness in his life. He's also got here, as the fellas write, one of the greatest pieces of delusional thinking of the whole series as Christopher insists after Adriana tells him to be a male model. Christopher says, I'll get back to the writing someday from a position of great wealth. As far as male modeling, I'd probably be a success, but I wouldn't be around those effing people. Uh, later on, Polly uh, sees this Tony just as a vicious beating on Georgie. He actually lost a bit of his sight there when Ralphie hit him with the chain. This time had some permanent hearing loss. Just a horrible scene there because Tony's just so savage. Even as Melfi says, depression is rage turned inward. And this episode, by the way, directed by Mike Figgis, who directed Leaving Las Vegas. There's something else as well. And then you really see just the, the, the meanness, honestly, literally the meanness of Tony Soprano. Um, at the last scene there, he's eating with Janice, Bobby, and the kids. He deliberately brings up Janice's estranged Quebecois son, Harpo, letting her discomfort build until he's openly taunting her by asking, I wonder what's French-Canadian for I grew up without a mother. And right there, Janice loses it. And his work done, Tony flashes a smirk, terrifyingly similar to the look we saw so often on Livia's face when she successfully pushed his buttons. And then he strides out of there. Like, what a horrible person. This guy, literally, in the previous episode, he makes his nephew Christopher cry again. And this time, he just makes Janice just enraged by bringing up her estranged son. It's just so mean. And it just shows the kind of character that Tony Soprano is. He walks out with the kinks playing, I'm not like everybody else. Those are a few episodes here of season five of The Sopranos. Next time we'll talk about three of the best episodes of the entire show. The season finale, which is all due respect, long-term parking, which is my favorite episode, and also um, episode 11, which is the test stream, one of the more divisive episodes as well. It's why I think season five of The Sopranos is as good as it gets. All right, thanks again to everybody for listening. Really appreciate it. Thanks to my man, Cabral Richards, Cabby. Make sure you check him out, Bleacher Report Gambling Show. Check him out on Twitter and Instagram as well. And of course, in the next episode, we'll break down the Emmys. That's right, special Emmys recap. So that episode will be coming out next Monday. Until then, I'll see you at the movies. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. 
For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour 3-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.